the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. The Bible does specifically single out and condemn Jewish people for their unbelief. And there's a reason for this. The reason is that they, above all other people groups in the world, they were sovereignly chosen by God to be his special covenant people. They are a unique people. They are his covenant people, a people that he promised to bless, and he has with so many spiritual privileges. And yet, though he revealed himself to them, and though he set his loving affection on them, their history is one of constant rejection, constant rebellion, so that their unbelief in light of their many spiritual privileges is presented in scripture as a great tragedy. time once again for Verse by Verse, and we are studying Stephen's defense with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. Today we are in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. But later in this chapter, Stephen said to the Sanhedrin, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I've read those verses many times, and sometimes I can't help but cheer for Stephen, you know, like, go get him. However, as I read those today, I have to ask myself if I am stiff-necked. It's very easy to direct God's word to someone else, However, let me encourage you today to take in God's Word and ask God to apply it to your life. Here is Steve Kreloff. Years ago when I was in Bible college, I took a class on the Gospel of John. Now, if you've ever studied John's Gospel, you know that John makes a great deal about the antagonism and the unbelief of the Jewish leaders, who he refers to as the Jews, toward Jesus. So one day... During this class on John's gospel, a student asked the teacher, he said, is unbelief a Jewish problem? Now, a few of us in the class who were Jewish objected to this question because it sounded as if this student was suggesting that Jewish people were unique in their unbelief. And I thought the teacher answered very wisely when he replied that unbelief is a human problem and not a Jewish problem. And he certainly was right. Unbelief isn't limited to the Jewish people. It's a reality for every one of Adam and Eve's children. 
But frankly, that being the case, the Bible does specifically single out and condemn Jewish people for their unbelief. And there's a reason for this. The reason is that they, above all other people groups in the world, they were sovereignly chosen by God to be his special covenant people. They are a unique people. They are his covenant people, a people that he promised to bless, and he has with so many spiritual privileges. And yet, though he revealed himself to them, and though he set his loving affection on them, their history is one of constant rejection, constant rebellion, so that their unbelief, in light of their many spiritual privileges, is presented in Scripture as a great tragedy. We see this very clearly in Paul's words at the beginning of Romans 9, where the Apostle Paul highlights just the heartache for him personally, the heartbreak of Israel's unbelief in light of all the spiritual privileges that they have squandered by their rebelliousness toward God. Here's what Paul said as he opened chapter 9. He said, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a good reason Paul said, I'm not lying, because what he's about to say is astounding. He said that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying, I'm telling you the truth. I have agony in my heart because of Israel, my kinsmen's unbelief. And if it were possible, I myself would go to hell if that would save the Jewish people. That's why Paul said, I'm not lying. Now, he goes on to speak of Israel's unbelief in light of all the privileges that God has given them. He says in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever, amen. Even with all of these privileges, they have spurned God's love and his blessings, and that is tragic. But as pointed as Paul's words are about Israel's unbelief, The most forceful, the most powerful denouncement of Jewish unbelief came from a man by the name of Stephen, one of the original deacons in the Jerusalem church and the first Christian to be killed, murdered for his faith. Standing before the Jewish council, the high council, the Sanhedrin, the same council that had condemned Jesus to death and had recently flogged all the apostles for preaching about Jesus, Stephen says these startling words to the religious leaders of his nation. Acts 7 verses 51 through 53 said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And for these startling words of charging his fellow Jews and the religious leaders of his nation with being stubborn, self-willed, always resistant to the Holy Spirit, murderers of the holy prophets and of the righteous Messiah, 
and disobedience of the law for saying those words, he was immediately stoned to death, thus receiving the distinction of being the first martyr in the history of the church. But how did it all come to this? Why would Stephen say such inflammatory words to such an austere group of men that would obviously enrage them and get him killed? And how did he come in the first place to address the Sanhedrin when we read in Acts chapter 6 that his initial role in the church was that of a deacon in charge of distributing food to needy widows? How did all this happen? Well, to answer these questions, we have to turn our attention to the longest and one of the most challenging chapters in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. I invite you to turn there. But you can't understand Acts chapter 7 without knowing something of chapter 6 and the background of all of this. And that's what we studied several weeks ago. What we learned in chapter 6 is that after being chosen as one of the first deacons in the Jerusalem church, Stephen's ministry, we don't know how this happened, but it did. God called him. Stephen's ministry expanded to include preaching, preaching about Jesus and the gospel message. And it was while one day he was in the process of preaching, apparently in a local synagogue in the city of Jerusalem, that some of the men of that synagogue took exception to what Stephen was saying, and they started arguing with him. They started debating with him, but to no avail because the Bible says that they were unable to cope with his biblical wisdom. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8, we read this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those are places, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so, unable to defeat Stephen by honest debate, Luke tells us, that they resorted to what we would call a smear campaign in order to discredit Stephen. Verses 11 through 14 say this, Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place, meaning the temple, And the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, notice that there are two specific accusations that they level against Stephen. One was that he spoke blasphemous words, they said, against Moses, meaning that he spoke evil against the law of God that he gave to Moses Two. They charged him with speaking blasphemous words against God himself, apparently meaning the temple of God, which stood in the city of Jerusalem, and that was the spiritual epicenter of the entire nation. Everything revolved around the temple. Now, obviously, these false witnesses were twisting Stephen's words. Of course, he didn't speak against the law of Moses or against Moses himself. But what he no doubt said is that the keeping of the law could save no one. It couldn't make anyone right with God. And now that the Messiah had come, the ceremonial laws which were given to Israel, pointing to the Messiah, they've been set aside by God. You don't need these rituals 
symbols pointing to the Messiah when the Messiah has come. The reality has come. And folks, that's exactly the message of the letter to the Hebrews. It's over. It's over. All the ceremonies pointed to Christ. Christ has come. You don't need those ceremonies. And as far as the temple is concerned, Stephen apparently taught that God's presence is not limited to one dwelling place on earth. But these false witnesses manipulated Stephen's words so that they made it sound as if he was opposed to the temple. In fact, so opposed, so much so that he wanted it torn down. Notice again, verse 14, what they said he said about the temple. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place. The place he's talking about is the temple and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, folks, that is the background of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. So having been dragged out of the synagogue to stand before the men of this council, where he has now been falsely accused of blasphemy against Moses and God, we read in the first verse of chapter 7 that the high priest said, are these things so? In other words, is it true that you have spoken such words of blasphemy? Now, blasphemy was a very serious charge because according to the Old Testament law, anyone who blasphemed God, meaning anyone who spoke evil or spoke against God, was to be put to death. And so with this question being put to him by the high priest, Stephen knows that he is essentially on trial for his life. So he must defend the charges being brought against him by choosing his words wisely and carefully, which he does. But listen closely because he does much more than this. See, instead of just directly defending himself, Stephen also uses this opportunity before the Sanhedrin to highlight some very important points of Jewish history. And that's why initially, as you read through Stephen's speech in Acts 7, if you've ever done that, it appears like he's giving the Sanhedrin a mere history lesson of their own history. And if that was the case, then he was just wasting his time and their time because these men were already familiar with these events in the Old Testament. But Stephen wasn't giving them a mere history lesson. He wasn't telling them unnecessary things about their history. See, Stephen's purpose in rehearsing these events in Jewish history is not only to show that the charges against him are false, but also to show these men that they, like their ancestors before them, they're guilty of rejecting the God who sent deliverers to the Jewish people, culminating now in their rejection of the greatest deliverer of them all, Messiah Jesus. In other words, he's telling them that he's not the one guilty of blaspheming Moses or God. They are. Just like their forefathers, he says, he accuses them of being stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, meaning you're acting like pagans, always resisting the spirit of God, guilty of killing the prophets to announce Messiah's coming, guilty of murdering their own Messiah, and guilty of disobeying the Mosaic law. They're the ones who are guilty, not him. Now, the reason Stephen's speech can be so challenging to follow and understand is because there are a number of varying elements in his speech. First, he mentions several, as I mentioned, well-known Old Testament characters, spending the most time speaking about Moses, about Moses growing up in Egypt, 
then his fleeing to the Midian wilderness, and then his return to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to wander in the wilderness, all the while that they continued to complain and rebel against Moses and be disobedient to God. And then Stephen, after speaking about Jewish history and certain men, he closes his speech talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Now, while Stephen's speech is easy to follow in a chronological sense, because there's a timeline he follows as he explains the beginning of Jewish history with Abraham, then how the people came to live and dwell in Egypt, as he explains Joseph to them, how they left Egypt by Moses, and then years later, how the temple came to be built by Solomon, Stephen's thought process, the chronology is easy to follow. His thought process is not that easy to follow. It is not a cut and dry outline as one would think as in a Western mind. It's not like that. In fact, some who hold to a very low view of scripture have criticized Stephen's speech, accusing him of rambling, being dull, even being incoherent. One critic went so far as to call Stephen, and I quote, a quite intolerable young speaker, and a tactless and conceited bore. Others have criticized Stephen's speech as being pointless and just irrelevant. Such negative views of Stephen's speech are made by those who obviously don't know the Lord, and they fail to understand the nature and the purpose of Stephen's speech. See, far from rambling and being incoherent, far from being pointless and being irrelevant, Stephen's speech is actually pure genius. It's pure genius as the Spirit of God guided him as to what to say before his accusers, and it can be understood and it can be followed. Now listen closely. What Stephen does in this speech is he defends the charges brought against him that he has spoken against Moses and the temple by mentioning some significant highlights from three very well-known men in Jewish history. He mentions Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And his purpose in doing this is twofold. Number one, he shows from the lives of these men that God is not limited to dwelling in a temple building in the city of Jerusalem because the Lord acted and worked in the lives of these three men while they were living in other places in the world outside of Israel. Remember, this was one of the accusations brought against Stephen, that he had spoken against the temple. So his defense is that God isn't to be limited to living in a human temple in the city of Jerusalem. And the proof is in the lives of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. Therefore, he is not guilty of blaspheming God or his temple. And listen, what leads us to believe that this is precisely the point that Stephen is making here is that out of all of the information in Scripture about these three men, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses that Stephen could have pulled from because the scriptures are filled with information about them, he specifically, guided by the Spirit of God, chooses to emphasize their whereabouts, their location, where they were dwelling when God acted on their behalf. Let me show you what I mean. He is very clear to bring out their location. For example, in verse 2, it says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, note this, when he was in Mesopotamia. Why doesn't he just say he appeared to our father Abraham? No, he says when he was in Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent, before he lived in Haran. And then notice verse 9. The patriarchs, meaning the sons of Jacob, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. He doesn't just say slavery. He says Egypt. He went down to Egypt. Yet God was with him. Oh, he wasn't in the land of Canaan. He wasn't in Israel. He was in Egypt, but God was with him. Notice again, verse 22. Now he's speaking about Moses. Moses was educated in all the learning of what? The Egyptians. Why? Because he was living in Egypt. He was a man of power in words and deeds in verse 30. After 40 years, this is still Moses, had passed. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness where? Of Mount Sinai. That's not in Israel. In the flaming of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but watch this. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. It was holy ground, but it was not ground in Jerusalem. He was not in Israel. He was in the wilderness, the Midian desert wilderness. So in mentioning the various locations that these three Jewish characters were when God worked in their lives, Stephen is stressing the fact that God is not limited to dwelling in a temple in Jerusalem. That was a big deal to the Jewish people. But secondly, Stephen shows specifically from the lives of Joseph And Moses, that though both of these men were raised up by God to deliver the Jewish people, both of them were rejected and mistreated by the Jewish people they were sent to deliver. To which Stephen will eventually conclude and make the application that they, the Sanhedrin, have done exactly the same thing in rejecting Jesus. The one the Father sent to deliver them from their sin, but they've rejected him. But it's also in speaking about Moses where Stephen specifically defends himself against the charge of blaspheming Moses and the law. And he does this by speaking so highly of Moses and also speaking so highly of the giving of the law of God to him. And yet he points out that it was the Jewish people who refused to obey God's law. Therefore, far from blaspheming Moses and the law given to him, Stephen is honoring Moses. He's speaking highly of Moses. He's speaking highly of the law. He recognizes it. He calls it the living oracles of God. And then, having concluded the charges against him, Stephen concludes his defense by returning to the very question of the temple. And what he does He directly and bluntly now states what they should have already known, that God does not dwell in a mere building made by human hands. Notice what he says at the end of his speech, verses 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, and then he quotes from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? 
Was it not my hand which made all of these things? In other words, having already told them that in the lives of Abraham and Joseph and Moses, that all this reveals indirectly that God doesn't dwell in one location. Now he's telling them directly. If they didn't get it before, now they should get it. Scripture says that God himself says that he doesn't dwell in one location. So folks, this is Stephen's argument. This is his defense. This is his witness for Jesus Christ. It's all rolled up in one speech that will end in his brutal death. That is a rather abrupt place to end our broadcast today. But in our next verse-by-verse program, we will begin to examine Stephen's speech. It's too long to get through in one program, but we want to begin to examine what Stephen said to the Sanhedrin about Abraham, and that sets the tone for the entire speech. It also reveals the way that the Holy Spirit was leading him to defend himself against the charge of blaspheming God and his temple. I've been looking ahead in this series, and I want to encourage you, don't miss a single broadcast. It's that good. However, there are those realities of life that impact our schedules, and I have a solution. Surf over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. Then, if you miss a program, you can listen whenever you are able. And please join us next time for part four of Stephen's Defense Before the Sanhedrin. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.